Please take your outlines as we look at uh, the first letter to Timothy. This is part seven in the series uh, on Timothy. Timothy was a young pastor that the Apostle Paul wrote to to talk to him about what he needed to do in terms of his organization of the church. And so we're talking a lot about the church this month uh, and this this year. Um, we'll be at First Timothy three verses one through seven. Uh, in just a moment, my sources include Philip Graham Ryken's Reformed Expository Commentary on 1 Timothy, Michael Bentley's Passing on the Truth from Timothy, uh, John R.W. Scott, The Message of 1 Timothy, William Barclay, Letters to Timothy, and a book that the elders have just read uh, entitled The Shepherd Leader by Timothy Whitmer. And the elders just had uh, an elder retreat yesterday. And um, some things will be coming out about that that we've studied and learned. I will take a, a stewardship moment just to say, if you notice the financial information that we put in the bulletin, it's very, very important to kind of check on how we're doing on that, especially when it concerns the building fund. We're not in a campaign right now, so we're asking you to give uh, offerings over and above your tithe to help in that regard so that we don't have to pull from the budget our payment. Someone gave an anonymous gift that almost paid our entire payment for the month of February, and we're thankful to the Lord for that. Um, thankful that the Lord provided in such a way as He did. And so, you know, if every one of us gave a hundred dollars a month or two hundred dollars a month, you wouldn't believe that would take care of our our payment note for the month. So, uh, again, I encourage you in your giving and appreciate so much your faithfulness to the Lord through this church. All right, 1 Timothy chapter 3. Please stand for the reading of God's holy word. 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 7. This is the word of God. Here is a trustworthy saying, Whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Now the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him, and he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders, so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this, your word. Thank you for what you will teach us through this word. Thank you for the overseers in this church. Thank you, Lord, for the people that look out for us, the people that counsel us, the people that pray for us. Would you remind us of that today, Lord, and give us a spirit of willingness to submit to those who are over us in the Lord. And so, Lord, help us today as we study your word, that you might be our teacher. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I don't know if you know who Larry Crabb is, Dr. Larry Crabb, Christian counselor, author, Bible teacher, and uh, he's written a book that uh, I still go back to again and again called uh, Inside Out. And uh, Larry Crabb recalls an incident in the church that he attended as a young man. It was customary in the church that he was brought up in to, to have the young men pray in, in times of preparation for the communion services, and they were supposed to pray out loud. 
uh, feeling the pressure of that expectation, the young crab who actually had a problem with stuttering in public at the time, he stood to pray. He prayed a terribly confusing prayer. He recalls it something to the effect of, Thank you, Father, for hanging on the cross, and praise Christ for triumphantly bringing the Spirit from the grave. You know, not really theologically accurate there, and he knew that. And when he finished, he vowed that he would never again speak or pray in public in front of a group. Never again. And at the end of the service, not wanting to to meet any of the church elders who might feel constrained to correct him in his theology, Crabb made a very quick exit for the door. But before he could get out, an elder in the church, an older man named Jim Dunbar, caught him. Having prepared himself for the anticipated correction, Crabb instead found himself listening to these words. Larry, I just want you to know one thing. Whatever you do for the Lord, I am behind you 1,000%. Crabb reflects in his book, Encouragement, The Key to Caring. He said, even as I write these words, my eyes fill with tears. I have yet to tell that story to an audience without at least mildly choking. Those words were life words to me. They had power. They reached deep into my being. And I don't know if you've ever had an elder or a minister, a pastor, in in some way do that for you. But I'm going to tell you, when you have that experience, and, and I have had that experience, it is life to your soul. It is life to your soul. It's powerful what God can do through His people in our lives. And that's why He put these people in place over all of us. So three lessons this morning, if you're following in the outline. The first is this, the importance of elders. The importance of elders. You know, I know a a lot of churches have different forms of government. They have different names for the people that they put in place. Our, Our text is very clear that they should be called an overseer or an elder. And a church is only as strong as its weakest link. And you may have heard that before. So this church... And every church needs strong leaders. If you want to be a leader, then you should desire above all else to be spiritually mature. And and that means you're growing in the Lord. Being spiritually mature takes time. It takes effort. It takes discipline. It doesn't mean that you have arrived. It doesn't mean that you're head of the class. It simply means that you're committed to seeking Christ first in your life. Did you know that no one is perfectly qualified to be a church leader? No one. There's always going to be room for growth in every leader, even and especially in this leader. At the same time, every leader should be a person who doesn't have any glaring weaknesses that disqualify him for service. But if a leader is weak in an area, it would be good for him to be aware of that and and to be working on that area. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians, the letter to the church at Corinth, the second letter to the church at Corinth. 2 Corinthians 2, verse 16. And Paul says this, To the one we are an aroma that brings death, to the other an aroma that brings life. And who is equal to such a task? And then the next chapter, chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians, verse 5. 
Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. Our competence comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant. So let's look again at that first verse in our text. And Paul began with another one of his trustworthy sayings, which is kind of a pattern in this, in this letter to Timothy. And this trustworthy saying is this. Whoever desires to be an overseer desires a noble task. My pastor, when I was in St. Louis, he wrote a book that was a training manual for elders called The Noble Task. So what does it mean to be an elder or an overseer is a noble task? It means it's a good task. It's a holy task. It's a just task. It's one that you feel a sense of honor in being in that role. Woodrow Wilson was the 28th president of the United States, and after his presidency, he was asked what the greatest honor was in his life. Do you know what he said? He said, my greatest honor in life was to be an elder in the Presbyterian Church. That was his response. He'd been president of the United States. He'd been the most powerful man in the world, and yet he considered the greatest honor and privilege of his life to be an elder, to be an overseer in the Presbyterian Church. The Greek word for overseer is episkopos. Episkopos, which is sometimes translated as bishop. Episkopos is the Greek word that gives the Episcopal Church its name. It's synonymous with the biblical word presbyter or presbyteros, which means elder, and that gives the Presbyterian Church its name. So the Presbyterian Church is literally a church led by the elders. In Acts 20, verses 17 through 38, the words for pastor, which is poimen, the word for elder, presbyteros or presbyteros, and bishop, episkopos, are all used interchangeably in that passage. That's Acts 20, verses 17 through 38. What might make you want to conclude, uh, as you read through that, that maybe there's no difference in rank among the elders of the church, and that some churches hierarchical churches, that they actually go beyond the teaching of Scripture by ranking the elders, both of which are not true. Look with me in 1 Timothy, and we're going to go a little bit further. 1 Timothy chapter 5. We're in 3 right now, but let's turn a page and look at chapter 5 of 1 Timothy, verses 17 and 18. 1 Timothy five seventeen: The elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. Scripture says, Do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain, and the worker deserves his wages. So, bottom line, God designed that His church have pastors. And Scripture is clear that some kind of pastoral oversight is essential it is God's will for His church to have this kind of oversight. And so these, these men that you see on the front row uh, are ruling elders. And then Bo and I are teaching elders. And so Paul and Barnabas, on their first missionary journey, they actually appointed elders in each church. The same approach, the same instruction is given here in 1 Timothy and also in the book of Titus that we've studied before. God wants His church to have those who oversee the lives of His people. Because we are sheep, and sheep stray. Sheep wander, just like we sang in the wonderful hymn that we began with. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it.
prone to leave the God I love. It makes no sense, right? It makes no sense that we want to leave the God that we love. But yet in our sinfulness, we do that. We do foolish things, which is why we need overseers to help us, to counsel us, to bring us back. God wants our church to have ruling elders who give their heart and their soul to Christ's church and are so busy in the work of Christ in our midst that we just are amazed at what they do. Paul says the job, quote unquote, of an elder is so important, it better not be given to a lazy man. So the importance of elders is stressed in the first lesson. Let's look at the second lesson, which is the qualities, the qualities of elders. And again, I don't want to say qualifications because I don't think there are any that are qualified truly. None of us are qualified. But let's look at the qualities that you look for in elders. And it's in verse 2. Now the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. So one thing is clear to me in this passage. Our text clearly teaches that an elder... Must be a man. Now, if, if that's a shock to you, you weren't here two weeks ago. Because we talked about this two weeks ago. Uh, and, and I would urge you to, to look up and listen to the podcast on February the 10th. As we talked about this, men and women in the church. You can also go to our website and you can listen to the sermons that way. But we talked about this. That this personal pronoun he is used is talking about his wife. So, on. so what kind of man is he supposed to be? And I've got eight different characteristics that the Apostle Paul points out. And so I hope you have a pen, pencil, and uh, follow along in the outline if you would. Number one, above reproach. Above reproach. It doesn't mean that the person is perfect. But it does mean that there shouldn't be anything in a man's life that will open him up to criticism. The goal is to live a blameless life, a morally pure life. Second, faithful to his wife. Now, this is one that that kind of trips up people. I actually like the NIV translation here, even though other translations tend to say the husband of one wife. And I know some of you have read that before and wonder, what does that mean? This verse has caused people to think that if they've been married before, that somehow they're disqualified for service. So let me put it this way. There are several views about what this verse, the husband of one wife, Means Number one, that a polygamist is not qualified. Well, you know, a polygamist would not be qualified for membership in the church, much less to be a a leader in the church. So that really makes no sense there. Secondly, the Greek literally says one woman man. One woman man. And that's the one I think is the more accurate translation. And then the third uh, interpretation is that the person should be married only once. And I don't believe that's what Paul intended here. In fact, I don't think it was required that a man be married at all. But if they are married, they should be faithful in their marriage bond with their one wife. And that's why the translation is, is, I think, accurate, faithful to his wife. This is talking about sexual purity in marriage. All right. Thirdly, temperate, self-controlled and respectable. Temperate, self-controlled, and respectable. Some translations of the New Testament use the word sober here. And what the passage means is the elder must be able to control his behavior. The word for respectable is actually the same word used in reference in the last chapter to women's clothing under the term modesty. 
And so that's what it's talking about here. Number four, and that takes us to verse three. Not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. So while, again, four is drunkenness, not given to drunkenness, not quarrelsome. So while alcohol is not condemned in Scripture, getting drunk sure is. And so losing control in any shape, form, or fashion is condemned in Scripture. You should never allow yourself to lose control through alcohol consumption or through any kind of violent tendencies that cause you to lose your temper and lose control. Number five, hospitable. Hospitable. William Barclay explains it this way. He says, quote, the Christian leader must be a man with an open heart and an open house. It's a good one. John Stott says that to be hospitable naturally follows being self-controlled since self-mastery makes self-giving possible. Self-mastery makes self-giving possible. Number six, not a lover of money. Not a lover of money. We'll see later in Timothy that Paul calls the love of money a root of all kinds of other evils. And that's chapter 6, verse 10. There's evidence that the false teachers that that Paul was warning Timothy about, they actually loved money. And sadly, in our day, there are televangelists, there are evangelists who have made themselves wealthy through their ministries, and particularly through their financial appeals. The majority of Christian leaders in this world are not trying to get rich by serving in the kingdom. The majority are not. And so, you know, the, the one bad apple always spoils a whole bunch. And so there are people that are doing that for selfish gain. So we should all, as Jesus said, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, knowing that God promises, if we do that, to provide for our needs in abundance. Number seven, not a recent convert. Not a recent convert. Verse six says, verse six says he must not be a recent convert or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. Alright, so the meaning here, according to the authorized version, is that he should not be a novice, a word that means newly planted, newly planted. If you've ever planted a small tree, then you might have put a strong stake next to it, next to it and then tie uh, the plant to it. If you remember, you know, if you've ever done that in terms of planting a, a tree, um, you might have a, a strong stake that's tied to it. And, and that, as, as a result, gives the plant strength as it grows. A newly planted tree needs a lot of support. A newly planted tree needs a lot of support, so it's allowed to grow and put down its roots firmly in the ground. In other words, elders need time to mature as Christians. Shouldn't lay our hands on a new convert uh, for an elder role. And then number eight, a good reputation with outsiders. A good reputation with outsiders. By outsiders, Paul means the non-Christian public. He wants the people of God to know that the world is constantly watching them, so elders need to be wise in their behavior toward outsiders and to win their respect. Alright, so that's the, the qualities of elders that the Apostle Paul addresses, addresses in our text We talked about the importance of elders. And now the last and most important, in my mind, the work of the elder. The work of elders. What are the duties? What are the duties of an elder? It's not really addressed necessarily in here, but yes, it is. There's a couple of these points that Paul makes that actually addresses 
um, the actual duties of the elders. And there's really only two. Really only two. Can you find them? What sets Christian ministry apart is an understanding of the Word of God. The understanding of the Word of God, where he talks about being apt to teach. That's the first one that we'll look at. So, elders should know God's Word so that they can impart it to those under their care. So, what did Jesus say to Peter when Jesus was restoring Peter to the ministry? Well, let's turn to John 21. Let's turn to the Gospel of John. And you remember why it was important for Jesus to reinstate Peter? Peter had done what? He had denied Jesus, not once, not twice, three times, in public, for all to see. And Peter thought he was done. And so Peter was going to go back to to fishing, which was his occupation. And Jesus finds him on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And he walks up to him and he says these words. After they'd eaten, he says to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord. He said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you, you know all things. You, you know that I love you. And what does he say? Feed my sheep. So rather than focus on the part about the questions of do you love me, Peter? Let's focus on what Jesus told Peter to do. He was letting Peter know, I've forgiven you. I've forgiven you. I'm now restoring you to ministry. I'm putting you back on the lines. I'm putting you back on the front lines. And so feed my sheep, tend to my lambs, take care of my sheep. And, and therein we have the two duties that are mentioned in our text. The first being feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Verse 2 says we need to be able to teach. And this, this comes under the category or phrase in our text where Paul said that an elder must be able to teach the Word of God. So central to the work of a shepherd, uh, an under-shepherd, and of the Lord Jesus, the chief shepherd, is to feed the flock. So if, if you don't know God's Word, how can you teach? You really can't. I will say this. No one learns more than the teacher. No one. No one learns more than the teacher. So if you're committed to learning God's word, then, then sit under some teachers that we have in this church. And then if the Lord prompts you, why don't you volunteer to teach a, a children's class and, and help with teaching the word of God to children and to young people? Because I tell you what, you will be forced to do your homework and you will learn more than the students. Feed my sheep. The second duty of an elder is to care for my sheep. Care for my sheep. This applies to pastors as well as to ruling elders. Verse 4 in the text. Look at the the fourth verse in the text. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him, and he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. William Hendrickson, one of my favorite writers, he explains it this way when he's what is said in verse 4. 
Though authority must be exercised, this must be done with true dignity. That is, it must be done in such a manner that the father's firmness makes it advisable for the child to obey. His wisdom makes it natural for the child to obey, and his love makes it a pleasure for the child to obey. Really great. Verse 5 goes on to say, if he does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? It's a great question, isn't it? So elders must care about the sheep, those who have been placed under their charge. In Acts 20, verse 28, the Apostle Paul was talking about the, the church at Ephesus. And he says, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of, that means care for, the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. So how does a, a, an elder, how does a ruling elder, a teaching elder do this? Well, first he has to know his sheep. He has to know his sheep. Elders have to work hard to get to know the sheep under their care. Our church is, is growing and it is really difficult to keep up sometimes with the new people that are coming into our midst. And so that makes our work a little bit more of a challenge. That's why we were reading the, the shepherd leader. Because our church is growing, because there's people that we want to make sure are, are attended to in their needs. And that we're not overlooking anyone. And if we've overlooked you, it's never by design. Please know that. We love you and care for you and want so much to help you grow in the grace of God and to point you to faith in Jesus and walking with Jesus and what that means on a daily basis. And we're talking as a session about dividing our congregation into flocks where we actually have flocks with every name on our rolls in a flock. So that way you have an elder that you can talk to. You have someone that's a point of contact. You can always contact me and Bo. You can always find us. But you also have these wonderful men that God has raised up in our church that are here for you to be elders to, for you and to pray for you. Elders must pursue the sheep. Elders must get to know the sheep. And in turn, secondly, be able to protect the sheep under their care. And this will mean at times having the kind of relationship with the sheep that you're able to admonish them. What does that mean? It means to be able to challenge the sheep about their behavior. And no one likes to be challenged about their behavior. Do you like to be challenged about the way you live? Of course not. No one likes that. But we all need that. Do you recognize that we all need that? We need people that care enough about us to challenge us in the way we live. And I mentioned at the first of this message that I was so blessed to have an elder who spoke into my life. I've had that for many years. But I can still remember a difficult time in my young life. I was a youth director. I was going through a difficult time. I was depressed. And I had an elder that called me just about every day. And Ray is now in Alzheimer's. And I can't call and talk to Ray anymore. I've talked to his wife. She's a wonderful lady. But I'm so thankful that in those years when Ray was strong in the Lord and his mind was strong, he, he cared about me. And this was the day when, when your phone rang, you didn't know who it was. Okay? You couldn't say, I'm not going to answer that phone call. My phone ring at my desk and I would say, hello? Hey, Red, it's Ray. I didn't really want to hear from Ray. 
I was in that kind of frame of mind. But Ray was persistent. He pursued me and it changed my life. Obviously, as elders, we should take to heart the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 7. Matthew 7, verse 3 says, Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, Jesus says. First take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. And and elders take this passage to heart because the last thing we want to do is come across as judging anyone. But when you put yourselves under the care of this session of this church, we as elders care about you and we want to help you. And that sometimes is hard. That sometimes is very difficult. And so at the same time, we are all examining ourselves, which is what we should do as we come to the Lord's table today. So look with me at our verse of the week, which is 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5. Let's read this out loud together because we should always be examining our own selves. Testing our own selves. People have said to me, don't judge me. All right, well then you judge yourself. You judge yourself. Because that's what we're supposed to do in the household of God. Let's judge ourselves today. 2 Corinthians 13 verse 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ is in you unless, of course, you fail the test? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your church gathered today, corporately. Thank you that we could, as the body of Christ, come together in this local expression of of faith and worship together. And Lord, we have a lot in common because we're all sinners. We're all sinners, Lord, without hope of our salvation except in your sovereign mercy. And we say that. We say that, we acknowledge that on the day that we join this church. We acknowledge that we're all the same at the foot of the cross. But when we come to know you, Lord Jesus, we become what you call saints. We don't always feel like a saint. But you call us a saint nonetheless because you put your mark upon us. You put your name upon us. You put our name in heaven. You've written it down. You put your spirit in us, so we belong not to ourselves any longer. We belong to you. And you've told us to allow your church to be a shepherd for you. And so, as a shepherd, Lord, I pray that you'd help me, help these men that you've called to be shepherds over your people. Help the people to receive the care and the word that we bring. And Lord, as we come today to your table, we come with all of our stains, whatever those have been, uh, whatever's happened that's caused us to sin against you. I pray that you would lead us to confess that sin and repent of it. And so give us grace, Lord, in this time as we prepare for your table, that, Lord, we might submit ourselves to your care over us. Great shepherd of the sheep, I pray in Jesus name. Amen.